0: Today is December eighteenth, two 2009, and my guest is Clifford Winston, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author and uh, editor of many books, including what we're going to talk about today, Government Failure vs. Market Failure. Cliff, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be here. So your title is uh, Government Failure vs. Market Failure. Most people hear the term market failure. It gets thrown around a lot today, uh, often to mean things like, Markets didn't do what I wanted them to do. Uh, they failed me, or they failed what I'd hoped they'd do. And that's not what economists usually mean by market failure. We have a fairly uh, narrow definition. So why don't we start with, with talking about what the standard textbook definition of market failure is, and then we'll talk about government failure.
1: Okay, sure. Well, market failure, you're right, is, is something that everyone has a, their own uh, idea about. Things didn't work out for them. But economists... Uh, have a very precise notion of what market failure is, and it, and it does focus on what we call efficiency issues, that is the allocation of resources. And effectively what we're looking at are situations where we get an equilibrium where it would be possible to make one person better off without making anybody worse off. And there's a technical... Uh, term for that, Pareto optimality, but that's sort of a standard, what we call market failure, that that you can sort of reallocate resources in a way to to make at least one person better off without making anybody worse off. That
0: seems pretty uh, attractive, and it's named for the – great. I always liked his name, so I'm going to give his full name. The Italian economist, uh, late 19th century, I think, Uh, Vilfredo Pareto. Um, Correct. Sounds like a made-up name, but that's his actual name. It's a great name. Love it. So Pareto, that was one measure of how would we know that the world's better today than than another world, that a world A is better than world B, is that we'd like world A if somebody can be made better off without making some, anyone else worse off. So go ahead. Right
1: now, it, 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 just to be clear, you know, that, that would seem sort of, well, how, how could we ever forego any, any situations like that? And, and really what we're talking about are what we would say potential Pareto improvement, because usually what's necessary is to actually compensate some people um, so that they're no worse off, and then you still have something left over, and some people are better off. So they- the notion of actual improvement is very, very rare. You can't imagine any policymaker who who would allow anything like that uh, to remain. You'd figure, well, what's the harm of of making you know somebody better off and nobody else worse off? Usually, there involves a the transfer of resources involved. And you're talking about a potential improvement where you could at least compensate people uh, who who appear to lose and make them at least as well off as they were before. You'd still have something left, and that's really what we're talking about most of the time in
0: practice. And this is this is a, a very essential concept in modern uh, public finance and public wealth and welfare theory. I have to say, over the years, I've found that increasingly, um, uh, I've been increasingly uneasy with it. So, but, and at the end of this conversation. I hope we can get into some of those issues. But just to clarify what, what we've said so far, Pareto efficiency or it, policy changes that make the economy more efficient are simply saying the pie got bigger, and we're not going to worry about whether it's some of the people, uh, because of this policy change, might actually be worse off as long as the gains to those who are better off are sufficiently large that they could have been compensated, which is simply a way of saying the pie is bigger. Even though some people right. shares, and that's could what go we're down. talking
1: about It's just, it's just trying to increase the, the size of the pie. Obviously, that it has implications for distribution. And you know, l- let me just quickly preview. I'm sure we'll get to this later. That these things are often presented as conflicts, but they need not be. Um, you know, if, if you're inside the frontier, as we put it. Uh, you, you often can actually get ways of expanding the pie and even cutting it up then in a, in a way that may be more favorable
0: to distribution. But that's, that's further down yeah, a, the road. Yeah, I'm a skeptic on that, but we'll talk about that later. So, so the simple point, though, is that, is that you would want to know something about whether we're getting the maximum uh, productivity out of our economy. And if, if there were either laws in place that are hampering that or laws that could be put in place to improve it, we might want to go that direction.
1: Right, or well, more to the point, I mean, one of the major responsibilities of government, right, is to produce such such improvements. In other words, where government justification in theory uh, occurs in in the market is where there is this market failure, and the government is then supposed to come in and institute policies that you know lead us to things that make some people better off, with in principle not making anybody worse off, and in the process, expanding the pie. So that's sort of the efficiency objective of of government policy, and that was really what I wanted to to, to assess.
0: That's the textbook uh, claim. Uh, That's the way we teach most undergraduates and a lot of graduate students is to say markets don't always work perfectly, and if government could improve that, that should. Correct. That's that's the theoretical
1: justification for intervention on, on the efficiency ground.
0: So what's the government failure problem? All right then, the government. Oh, and I, you know, sorry, I, I, before we do that, yeah, talk sure. about some of the examples of market failure before before we go on to government. What okay, were well, cases where would, where markets would, quote, fail?
1: Okay, well, you know, there, there are several of them uh, that that people certainly are familiar with. You know, monopoly is one case. Um, there you have, you know, the the abuse of market power leading to, to prices above marginal cost. That creates what we call a, a deadweight loss. And, you know, if if the behavior that underlies this is anti-competitive, this is a market failure which, you know, supposedly antitrust policy uh, is intended to correct. And so, you know, they they would presumably step in and and do something that that leads to a more competitive outcome and prices to come down uh, and efficiency to be improved.
0: You want to, define, the, you want to define a deadweight loss? Tell tell Lester's what
1: you mean So uh, a, dead, a deadweight loss is, uh, occurs in a situation where there's just actually a loss of resources uh, to society in the process of, of maximizing their profits. Um, the monopoly would reduce output, and even though there are cases where on the margin you know, people would like to pay the cost of the output that is produced, they're not able to, and that output is just basically lost. Uh, to, to, to
0: society. So there's a potential exchange that could make the monopolist and the, in theory, could make the monopolist and the buyer better off, but the monopolists have to lower the price in all the other units unless there's a way to, to avoid that, and that would discourage the monopolist from doing that. So there's a, a foregone be- net benefit. That's the claim. So go ahead. Exactly. So there's antitrust. What else?
1: And then a technological one called natural monopoly. That's sort of the unusual situation where uh, output or the costs are minimized with one producer. You have declining average costs is, is certainly one condition that could do it. And the difficulty that arises there is in, in such a situation you have average cost below marginal cost. Um, uh, sorry, the other way around, you have marginal cost below average cost. And at competitive pricing, people would be losing money. You get in cutthroat competition. That's one possible outcome, or the other is there's one survivor and you get a monopoly. And so this is the public utility justification for regulation, that we'll allow one person to produce the output at least cost. At the same time, we'll do something about putting a cap on prices so we don't get uh,
0: exploited uh,
1: exploited and have excessive prices. So that, that's the classic uh, justification for regulation is natural monopoly. And obviously, though, we have regulations in cases where they're certainly not natural monopolies. Then certainly a big one is externalities, right. either consumption externalities So, an example just for a consumer is auto congestion. You're driving uh, around and you're in peak period and you delay other people um, and you don't have to account for that. In your decisions, you're imposing a social cost on others in, 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 in the delay. And there should be something in the market that makes you take account of that decision, but there is no, no way the market is being able to respond that way explicitly.
0: Partly uh, because no one owns the roads, but well, the government, of course, is then has well, the, the
1: opportunity to Well, The government owns suddenly... the roads, and, and, and the question is, well, is there something that they could do that, that would make people account, uh, for, for this kind of behavior? And then production externalities, of course, classic one is pollution, um, uh, where a firm is producing something and, you know, either dump something in water and, and obviously makes, makes the water polluted and prevents people from drinking it or get some sick or whatever, or air pollution, and obviously the, the bigger ticket ticket concern now about climate change. And again, question is, you know, what's the market doing explicitly to force firms to take account of the cost that they're imposing on a broader uh, segment of society? So the production extra, and then information failure. Yeah, that's the other one. Got a lot of attention too. You know, people do not are not acting with full information for for a variety of reasons, or even being deceived, and so their their the utility that they're expecting to receive from their goods does not turn out to be what they wind up getting, and so we have a variety of information policies that uh, you know try to try to deal with that problem.
0: Of course, the Austrian perspective is to suggest that it's a little unrealistic to to have perfect information be the the goal. The world is inherently—it's like saying you know friction is a physical externality, a physical imperfection. We need to get rid of friction, but of course, it's hard to have perfect. You can't have perfect information. Sure. And sort of sure. a straw man critique of of Yeah, all these activity. are you know,
1: very idealized situations. Yeah. So these are, and the, let me let me just mention the quickly the final one. Is like to call public production. That is, you have certain services that are socially desirable, but they may not be privately profitable. Uh, it may be, again, it's somewhat related to the scale economies. You might see a natural monopoly it could be a related problem, but one of them simply may be capital requirements. It's just very hard for a, one firm to produce the interstate highway system, Um
0: or people argue orphan that... Orphan drugs, I guess, would be an example potentially of that. Orphan drugs would be yeah. an example. And so the, the argument would be claim. that the government needs to get
1: involved and be the, be the provider of these goods or services because even though they, might, they may even lose money, overall, utility is enhanced because the production of these goods leads to social benefits that exceed whatever subsidies
0: the public is going to provide. So these are the textbook. Arguments made that, that markets need help. And then the textbook says, so government needs to, A, set the right tax, set the right subsidy, regulate. All Produ- made, produce themselves. Produce it themselves. Right. And what I find interesting about your uh, book is that instead of asking you know whether the textbook's right, uh, whether these things are quote failures or not, you say, well, let's see how government actually behaves when brought in to fix these things.
1: Exactly. So, you know, there's one thing, theory, and um, certainly that's important in in, in framing our analysis of, of, of social problems. But then we obviously need to know how the world actually works in terms of evidence. And so the question really that I was concerned with is, okay, you know, it's very easy to theoretically point out these problems with markets, and and as you said, you know some of these things may be sort of straw man, and you could argue whether really these are plausible expectations to have. But in any case, you know who actually pre- performs better? You know, do, do markets make effort to try to correct these failures, and in fact, uh, the extent of them is is greatly overstated, or does government come in and they actually can do a good job, and, and so the government intervention is justified, or they come in and they make things worse? collectively, what do we really know? And I think the, 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 one of the things that was really driving me to do this is because so many of these issues come up time and time again, but at least the, the public policy debate seems to always start from square one.
0: <laughs> it's true. We don't
1: start from, you know, what do we really yeah. know about this, yeah. and how can the accumulated body of knowledge really guide us on how we, might to, how we might proceed? So you know, this book was really sort of, in a sense, a, a first cut, Trying to start to assemble what we know as, as something that we can build off of and learn from and start accumulating evidence and start saying, okay, look, let's not just treat these things as if they've never happened before. Uh, let's build on what we know and go from there. And the book's and that available. That was really what I attempted to do.
0: And the book's available online, and we'll put a link up to it that you yeah. can read it without and, charge. It's, uh, it's very exactly. nice. Exactly. So, what, what do we know?
1: Well, and what how well we do we know is it. That, that government interventions have turned out remarkably to be disappointing, if you will, across the board? It, it is certainly the case that markets do fail in, in terms of the textbook definition. We do have something called pollution. We do have something called congestion. Um, you know, but there are other cases where it's pretty hard to find evidence for the fact that really there's very significant market failure, certainly the kind that would justify government intervention. And more troubling is really the lack of evidence of government interventions, whether justified or not, significantly turning things around. Um, now, And I'm not even saying that we need to use the benchmark of optimal government policy, just that they clearly are you know, producing benefits. And it was very hard for me to find evidence across the board um, that, that led to that conclusion, and let me stress a couple of things. First of all, you know, I focused, on, not exclusively, but almost exclusively on academic research. I really wasn't going to focus on, you know, government reports where they evaluated themselves for the most part. You know, those, there are not many of those, but that really wasn't my purpose. It really, it really was more of a scientific assessment of what, of what the scholarly community is, is, has to say about this in terms of empirical work. Secondly, again, let me stress... Oftentimes the public approaches these things as, as, as ideological uh, that you can predict based on one's political precision where they're going to come out. Yeah, I think it, it, it's very fair to say that I had a representative sample across the board in, in terms of what might think of political persuasions. You know, I didn't just l- limit the search to particular scholars. You know, th- this, is, this really is, I think, an honest reflection of, of the economics profession writ large, uh, what with, with, with they've been coming up with. So I think it's a a fairly objective story. Now, the the big qualification is I've also uncovered there's a lot we don't know. Um, There's certainly room for more work, and a lot of these conclusions could could be overturned. But at this stage of the game, it it does present a very disturbing picture for the efficacy of government intervention and a very big warning sign for those who immediately say, let's have the government come in and try to take care of this problem if they expect to have... uh, very positive result uh, to show for
0: it. Of course, listeners know that uh, two things about me. One is, I love your conclusion, uh, but the second thing listeners know is I've become increasingly skeptical about the ability of, of economists to act in scientific ways in evaluating empirical work. So I'm going to have a tough time with this. Um, I'm going to have a, a, um, a, bit, a bit of a schizophrenic approach to this to this interview, clip. so I'm warning you. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's right. fine.
1: I mean, the only thing I could say on, on the on the latter is almost the law of large numbers, in the sense that we're certainly not all colluding. So, yeah, <laughs> I, but, I think as n gets large, um, unless unless we're only talking about publication bias, which yeah, is there's not, not a not an unreasonable concern.
0: I worry yeah. about groupthink, but usually yeah. there's a lot of there's, there's potential. There's, you know,
1: I think those are not unreasonable things to to raise.
0: But well, it also for me, <clears throat> given my increasing skepticism about the quality of economics, empirical work, to me, it it depends a lot, and I will press you on this occasionally. It depends on the nature of the empirical work. Um, No, I think that's right. If it requires a lot of sophisticated statistical techniques with lots of assumptions along the way to simplify things, that to me is different than averages and and facts and things that are are relatively transparent.
1: That's right. No, I think that's right. There's got to be reality checks. And, you know, I, I tend to try to put some of those in the book with just simple descriptive, um, data. You know, just, you know, what, what do we know about the extent of the problem to begin with? Some cases one can do that to see, you know, is there re- even something measurable or observable to begin with? Other cases it's, it, it's much harder. Um, I, I would also add though that, that certainly, you know, economists are opportunistic in the sense if if they have a chance to sort of come up with an article that you know says all the previous research is wrong, they're going to do it. That's true. So right you know, I, I have to admit, I was a bit surprised by the the, the consensus that that appears to emerge. I, I, I want to stress that there obviously were were certainly some frictions in various ways, and there's you know there's actually already been an exchange that I've had with somebody on on the antitrust issues. But but by and large, it, it was surprising given the fact that, you know, we supposedly disagree all the time how much consensus there really was.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's turn yeah. to the evidence uh, yeah. and let's look at a few broad categories. <clears throat> and, of course, interested readers can uh, turn to the book and make – you can make your own assessment of, of whether you find the evidence convincing or not. Uh, rather than delve into each study, which, of course, we don't have time to do here, I'd like to sort of do a – I'd like to do a broad strokes – Sure uh, overview, and then talk about some of the the more uh, philosophical issues that, that the results raise, uh, regardless right. of their of their uh, how strong they're so right. let's turn to antitrust and um,
1: yeah, and I think in antitrust what, what was really interesting there was more the absence of sort of positive evidence um, you know it, it wasn't so much that, that I found things that said, you know government. Uh, investigations of, of collusion cases, per se, you know, led to significant price increases. I just didn't find evidence of significant price decreases. I didn't see, you know, evidence of, of cases on anti-monopoly cases, certainly Microsoft being the most recent one, where you really could sort of point to benefits to consumers. I think in retrospect, people now are sort of saying, what was the point? Of of the Microsoft case,
0: they could have and, said the same thing. What was the point of the IBM case? They could what have was said the point of the IBM case. I mean, that's right. Before the, 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 demonstrable the serial evidence case, exactly. It's, there's these huge government, and now we have.
1: And, and just just, like, just quickly yeah, make sorry. a point that you know, now we see the government's investigating Intel, and 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 ra- I'm not going to comment on that case. One, I, I'm not an expert by any means on any of that, but I think what what I'm trying to get at here is. Here, we have accumulated evidence of sort of the lack of of consumer benefits from government prosecution of anti-competitive behavior and monopoly cases, which I think should give some pause before going out and and having another big case. Yet, you know, we obviously are going to have one here in in certainly one area where, you know, chips where we think that the real price of those things have been going down. It's bizarre.
0: (laughs) Bizarre.
1: So you know, this I think is sort of a very topical example of of the kinds of sort of uh, tension I see between you know what we seem to be learning from the scholarly assessments and what goes on in practice.
0: So you, when you summarize and look over the uh, studies of antitrust collusion stu- studies of trying to prevent collusion where governments intervened, uh, you don't find any consumer benefit. In fact, there's some evidence there's consumer harm. Yeah. Um, Wouldn't the interventionist, which I'm not, but I play one on this podcast from time to time, wouldn't the interventionist claim that, well, that's just because those are the cases that you observe? Right, that's right. And it could be that without this occasional foray into threatening action against colluders and, and mergers and other things, that there's a hidden benefit we just can't see.
1: Right, the, I think the and it's a, it's a good response. The defense is well, you don't see really the main point of, it, of antitrust, which is deterrence. Um, that that without this policy, you know, all hell would break loose, and you know, prices would be through the roof, and you know, collusion would be the rule of the day, and and every you know industry would have mergers until we get monopoly, and so on and so forth. Now, there has been efforts to try to even address that question. Obviously, the difficulty there is what's the controlled or uh, semi-controlled experiment that that we run here. And the efforts really have been made on international comparisons. I mean, that's sort of the best that that people have been trying to do is just compare differences and the strength uh, of antitrust laws, U.S. and Canada, U.S. and United Kingdom. And that's sort of been the control of all this and you know even those studies really just don't see uh, you know anything that we seem to be doing that that, that is all that productive if you will in, in producing a, a more competitive economy with antitrust laws. but I think that's that's still an open question. I think you know one of the conclusions is certainly the lack of benefits but I, I don't think anybody can reasonably read this and say we really have a pretty deep empirical understanding of the effects of antitrust laws. It's far from it. I think it exposes gaps in in, in our knowledge here. But I, let me stress, I think one thing that, that I've been frustrated after writing this is just the, the lack of engagement with economists on this issue, that people still have very strong positions on antitrust policy, regardless of the evidence. A lot of things are written, uh, either pro or con about, quote, you know, the Bush administration's treatment of antitrust, and in very few of these things, if, if any of them, do I ever see any reconciliation with what the evidence is telling us and what we know, yet people have very strong uh, beliefs. I think this is one area of economics where I honestly think that, that it, it seems to be pervaded by religion.
0: Well, I, um, I think there's more than one, but, but that's definitely... This is, this is certainly one of them. I would go with... Um... Another small area of of economics where that's true, which is macroeconomics, where there sure, seems to be sure, there, a rather strong prior set of beliefs that informs people's reading of the evidence.
1: Right, but, but at least in macro, there there is a, a, a somewhat concerted effort to generate evidence. That's and, true, and, <laughs> and and I think what what is disturbing about antitrust is there just doesn't even seem to be much much concern about it, and um, either mentioning of it. I mean, it, again, I think it. The fact that we, we wrote this and pointed this out, I, I just thought it would, it would strike a chord, and it, it really hasn't. Um, and people say, well, it's difficult, uh, difficult to get data, but I think even the agencies who have economists and know about this, you know, could make things easier. Uh, and, and, and in fact, I noted that one of the responses to this work was a task force uh, with one of the antitrust authorities to say that they were going to do something like this, but, you know, then they dropped it. So, is, I, I think in many in ways this 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 was an exploration that was as disappointing for policy as it was really for the economics profession.
0: Well, we have to confess, well maybe not individually, but certainly collectively that um, whatever that means, uh, that economists have a, a large personal stake financially in the well, antitrust that's, wars. That's
1: right. That's a lot of people say they they consult, and that's really what's driving it's
0: extremely lucrative.
1: Yeah, a lot of this. At the same time, you know, the evidence is what it is, and yeah. uh, again, I think if if there were compelling benefits, uh, it, it would be good to see them. You know, what, what also is the the more open question, just just getting to your macro, micro, macro uh, discussion we'll have a, a bit later, is the lack of a broad overview of the, you know the over the social deadweight loss from monopoly in the United States. This was something that Harberger did a long time ago. Now, admittedly, it was very crude and, you know, lots of assumptions and all that kind of thing. But, you know, it suggested a small one. And it is an important measure, I think, for us to, to try to work on, which is something that is, does not go on in industrial organization, is some sort of overview about how industries are performing and subsequent uh, calculations of, of what Harberger was doing. We really haven't, haven't exposed again that one of the big problems in the U.S. economy is high markups because of monopoly power. So I think that that's sort of the kind of reality check that, that would also be very powerful to pursue. But it, 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 I think, again, one of the weaknesses of of, of I.O. is it's just not really given us enough hands-on sort of empirical overview of the performance of industries. IO, know, though, does not seem to be
0: troubling. I.O. being industrial organization. Industrial organization. Yeah. Let, let me give a different uh, contrarian take on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one one I think defense of the interventionist approach would be a version of the claim I made earlier. Well, okay, the U.S. economy looks awfully competitive, and in fact, I'm a very Schumpeterian uh, economist on this myself. Uh, when I'm in my own shoes, I you know I, I see tons of competition everywhere. I, I see monopolists who are supposedly getting. Suppose monopolists whose share is growing suddenly see their market disappear because of a competitor that comes out of the blue. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in the power of competition. But this, the contrarian view says, well, it's – sure, there's not much monopoly because that's because of the ef- effective threat, this deterrent we talked about before. And what would be the, the big gain from throwing away this apparatus? So being a, a non-interventionist, I'd say, well, let's get rid of all this antitrust right. stuff. And the contrary view could say, well, it's not that expensive, and as a result, maybe that deterrent thing's important. What do you think of that?
1: Right. Well, I guess th- there's two things. It, it, at, at the t- for the time being, if, if one, one, one wants to immediately draw policy implications of what we're saying, it's that you know, one should focus at least on the most egregious cases. You know, merger to monopoly, you know, there are mainly two firms in the industry, you allow monopoly together. You know, that's something arguably you, know, you, you certainly don't want to, want to allow to go through. Um, but there, those are certainly rare cases.
0: I'd let, you know, I, I'd let XM and Sirius, you know, I'd let them merge. It's one of those issues where once you, yeah, you, I you define you the market. To get, it's
1: de- defining what the relevant market is. But, you know.
0: Yeah, they had competitors in the iPod. Your, your car but I had no <laughs> problem with Ford and GM merging. I That's yeah. <laughs> you know, weird. Uh,
1: and then the, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the second issue, you know, obviously blatant collusion is, is something that, that we certainly don't want to be encouraging. But now, you know, your, your comment about, um, well, what's the harm? Well, the harm, obviously, is how the, how the, how the policy and the political economy of all this is gamed. That is, uh, arguably, Microsoft's competitors were the ones that, that had a lot to do with bringing this case. Uh, there are obviously huge transactions costs. This requires the attention of management for a considerable amount of time. Uh, a lot of resources go, go into that. Merely, the government isn't spending uh, billions of dollars. But you know, this, this can create a culture in which you get a mindset where your managers spend more time worrying about gaming the government than they do producing better products. It's a now, I think this city. is even more explicit in, in regulated industries and even the deregulated industries uh, that the, they grow up their whole life with the government, and it's very hard for them to sort of cut the cord, so to speak. Yep. And, and, I, and I think there are costs to that, very I very big costs. No, I do too. And, and, and it can be very difficult to measure, but it's not the climate that, that, that one really wants where one can think that, well, you know, I, I'm having a problem with a competitor, and it's time for me now to start you know, lobbying my congressman you know, to, to, to then Shackle. turn to the antitrust authorities and, and help solve my problem which arguably is what's going on with Intel.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm with you there. The, it's an example of, of the destructiveness of rent-seeking. And uh, we did a podcast with Mike Bunger on that, and we did one with Don Boudreau on this issue of antitrust. We'll put links up to those to remind people to check them out if they want. Is yeah, anyone... and I
1: think it's a pervasive problem you know, in, in all areas where government is involved. Let's, say, let's face it, it's going to be political, and people are obviously going to try to use this to their advantage.
0: We have any measures of the magnitude of that cost?
1: No. That would not, be a good thing to study. Not really.
0: Yeah. Be a good thing uh, to look I at. think
1: that would be something obviously that that would that would be good because I think it, I think it, it, particularly actually in the industries I know better that a lot of the recently deregulated industries
0: It'd be fun to do a case study at at a corporate level of how many hours of the day or of the week the CEO spends on these issues and how much, how big that legal staff is. How many? Right. Yeah. Right. That, that could cost lot, lots of money. Yeah, it's foregone productivity, of the economy. It's so absolutely. Let's let's move on though to a different area. Let's move on to safety and safety regulation, other forms of, of what you call social regulation.
1: All right. So so so, so social social economic regulation um, you know deals you know, primarily with with the externalities, um, uh, safety cer- certainly being one of them. Um, and and workplace safety, I think that that that's that's a good one because you actually have some descriptive evidence of your workplace accidents going down. But then, when you try to isolate what the effect of OSHA interventions are, so um, that that's the regulatory agency that's supposed to be inspecting you know safety of plants. You, people tend not to find a statistically significant effect of the OSHA regulation. So in, in the world, it seems like things are getting better, and this is the value then of regression analysis for trying to isolate the counterfactual. That is, really, what can, what can we attribute to, to the policy as opposed to other factors? And, and then I think also what, what's helpful in, in this area is then more detailed studies and of how these regulations actually work in practice. And let me just stress that point. I think, you know, one Great of the point. one of the one of the attractions of a very eloquent speaker like, like the president is that one gets the idea that it is someone of of his intelligence is actually sort of carrying out and performing these regulations. You know, when, when in practice, you know, you're not getting the president to go to inspect plants. You're not having the president go inspect toys. You're not having the president inspect drugs.
0: You're disillusioning it's, me, Cliff.
1: <laughs> you have people that you know who are, who are uh, <laughs> in these regulatory agencies. You know it's it, it's not uh, particularly well staffed in some cases. They're very spread out, as, as we learned on the on the uh, toy testing. We found out there was like one toy tester for for all these toys that were coming in for China. No wonder a few of them got by that weren't particularly safe. And OSHA is a similar type of thing. And I think between just the general morale and the difficulty of sometimes trying to persist with with some of these uh, investigations, you know, we really don't get an agency that that is particularly efficacious at sort of identifying problems. Um, This is not to say that some of them may not exist. It just, again, I think just the nature of how these things are done is very cursory and we don't really see much. Now, fortunately, the market in this case provides huge incentives for firms to have safe workplaces and to produce safe products because obviously they could be heard in the courts yeah. for, for we have a liability system and, of course, killed in the market uh, if um, uh, things are unsafe. And, of course, even in the labor market. If, if you have very unsafe workplace conditions, you have to offer a compensating differential. What in, about in terms of a higher wage.
0: So, what about imperfect information? The workers don't know that, so they get exploited and taken advantage of, and they don't get the higher wage because they don't. All
1: right, so, well, first of all, it, I think in the area of safety, that, that's one area where it's pretty clear when you know an airplane crashes or when a mine caves in or when you know people repeatedly have their hand chopped off from a, a, a machine that, that doesn't work well. And I assure you, in, in, increasingly, the, the word gets out about information at workplaces, um, you know, it, it's interesting. At least in the economics professions, I'm seeing for the for the first time sort of these job market blogs with just an awful lot of information going back and forth about potential employers. Yep.
0: Uh,
1: I can only imagine that that's got to exist in in other industries as well. Yep. So it, it's pretty hard these days to sort of hide the fact that that working for a particular firm is. Is safe when in fact it's unsafe. So again, these are the kinds of market forces that that have gotten even stronger. Um, and then when you look at the, the realities of the the regulatory agencies in terms of you know, how they're run, the constraints on people, the people themselves, uh, you know, it, it's not surprising that that we really don't find much evidence that these things are particularly effective.
0: So I want to say one word about the, your your um, comment on regression analysis. It's always tricky, and this is uh, an issue we've talked about before. It's always tricky to, quote, hold other things constant. The world's complex. What I would say is interesting about the safety issue is that when I've looked at those data, it's pretty clear, it's overwhelmingly clear, that the overall long-term trend in safety across every dimension of our lives, auto safety, workplace safety, is getting better and better. And it's been going on for 100 years, 50 years, as long as we have the data for it. So that's how sure. long it's getting better. And it's – the standard economic explanation I think would be that safety is a normal good. That is – the jargon is it's a good that's positively correlated with with income and prosperity. As we get more prosperous, we're willing to devote more resources in, to these issues and firms compete in providing safer and safer products because as we get richer, consumers are willing to pay a premium for safer products or to take a safer job, et cetera. Right, so a you look, higher,
1: in a sense, a higher value of life because yeah, the quality absolutely. of life is is getting that absolutely. much better. And that's what this is actually about. It's, so, it's really raising the quality of life.
0: So when you look at the data and you see that the trend is unchanged by the creation of OSHA, that doesn't prove that OSHA didn't make a difference. It's possible, and this is, of course, a, a real possibility, that it would have been worse without them, that the trend would have been different. But the key point to me is that puts the burden of proof on the OSHA defenders, not to just say, well, look, the law says it's more safety, but the data say no improvement. So but, you show me, OSHA defenders or uh, auto safety defenders, that, that the mandates as opposed to the bottom-up emergent improvements that have occurred, that the top-down mandates were the things that that, that they that they – Avoided something that would have been worse, and you have to yeah. you have to make and also that the point the
1: mechanism. I think I think also what, yes. what we what increasingly we want to get into is a much sort of a deeper micro understanding. You know, just even abstracting the, the data away from the data um, and just say behaviorally, What exactly are these inspectors doing um, that, that's telling the plant you know how to operate more safely? I, I make this point on airlines all the time. You know, what exactly is it the FAA? Is going to tell you know aircraft manufacturers and airlines that they don't already know. If anything, they've they've taught these people something. Um, you know, we we see the Dreamliner has just been uh, tested by Boeing, but it now has to be certified. I, I couldn't help chuckle and say, "No, wait." The FAA is going to tell Boeing whether they think their plane is safe enough to fly.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, you, you imagine the quality of the people who work. For Boeing on that plane and <laughs> the kind of training and knowledge they have. Well, the and, textbook, the and textbook, then and then, then then they're going to ask the FAA if they know what they're doing. <laughs> so I, I think those are the those are the kinds of things that, that that we need to press to get sort of a deeper understanding. Now you know there, there can be mechanisms um, you know, where could, where one might be able to point something out, but I think that's very important to do. And, and just just jumping ahead, I think that's also critical. In, in the area of, obviously, financial regulations and, and these things. Again, I'm no expert, but what I'm looking for in any sort of you know, proposed legislation is tell me exactly the mechanism you know, by which you really are going to reduce risk without you know, truly throwing out major incentives and innovation to these kinds of things. I think you know, one has to sort of go beyond just the abstraction. There's a problem out there. We need the government to do something and really point specifically what exactly it is that they can do, and what exactly it is they're going to do.
0: Well, the Boeing example is a great example because it really highlights to me this distinction you're making between market failure and government failure. Now, it's true that Boeing really isn't eager to crash its planes. It's not good for Boeing when the plane crashes. Not a, it's
1: not a good idea. Not no. good. Not good.
0: But you could argue, and and people do all the time, oh, it's true they don't want the plane to crash, but they're going to cut a corner here and there because they're motivated by profit. And the the economist response to that is, okay, true, but they care about profits tomorrow and profits today to the extent it's a organization that is ongoing with repeated interactions, its incentives are going to be probably very closely aligned with consumers. And so the counterpoint though is yeah, but not perfectly. And so what the government can do, emphasis on can, can do is just to make sure that they haven't cut a corner here and there. To boost say third quarter profits uh, because of some stock crisis, okay, fine, good point, but then the question would be your question, which is I think is 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 so phenomenally appropriate, which is fair enough, now tell me what the actual structure of the FAA would be, not what you imagine it could be, but tell me how it in practice reduces that corner cutting as opposed to just making life more difficult. For Boeing, <laughs>
1: well, also in pointing out, and pointing out pointing out to Boeing that it is cutting a corner that Boeing itself doesn't realize it's it's doing and hasn't thought carefully about the trade-offs because I think again it, it is clear sometimes in some of these investigations of the FAA that the airlines realize okay yeah we're not, we're not we're not we're not we have not changed our configuration of how we have to put the the, the screw on to you know. Some, some little part of the plane, and they say, look, we're still going to fly these things. We know this isn't in line with, you know, procedure, but the fact of the matter is there's no way that this thing is going to compromise the flight of the plane, and they know these kinds of things. I mean, it, when, when they cut corners and they have serious repercussions, you know, it, it's not just also profitability, you know... These can, be, these can have you know, negligence issues that, that can also have criminal uh, implications to them. And a lot of these people do know this. That this doesn't mean that some of them still won't take a chance, but this, this becomes very, very serious, life-changing things that just go beyond hiding behind a firm, losing money. I mean, yeah. human beings can, can go, to, go to prison for this kind of stuff. And uh, this is not something also that, that people who self-select to go into this line of work, want to do?
0: No, that's a good point. I wouldn't sleep so well at night either after the fact. I think uh, one would hope also.
1: I mean, and I it think it, it is true. A lot of these people have had very serious problems when uh, when when bad things have happened. And again, you look at the observed data; things have in the air area has gotten remarkably safe. Um,
0: so let's talk so about the. I,
1: I just I just wanted to throw in one of the things yeah, if I could that. You know, one thing I also want to stress, and, and this is uh, a point that um, uh, Sam Peltzman, who I know has, has, has uh, contributed a podcast before, has made, is just sort of market robustness. You know, how, how people themselves, the markets themselves, try to respond to externalities. So you know, one also sees this as, as a way of at least reducing the cost of them, And to be specific, you know, a nice example is congestion. And w- w- what we see in terms of a market response is, well, obviously the congestion that you yourself experience is something that's under your control. That is, in the buzzwords of economics, it's endogenous. And the way it's under your control is where you choose to live and where you choose to work. And quite understandably, if someone really dislikes driving um in congested traffic, they're going to make location uh, residential location and employment choices that try to reduce that congestion cost, albeit they may be trading it off and paying a, li- a little bit more to live closer in, uh, in in their housing. And so we often will see data in terms of estimates of value of time that people who have the highest value of time tend to have shorter commutes and people with, with low value of times have longer commutes. And in a sense, that's the market's way of trying to respond to an externality. Uh, we, sort of a classic example of that um, is in the area of, of, of noise. You know, people who don't like to live near runways or airports because they, they have a low tolerance for noise. And uh, I remember one response that I, that I heard to that as well. In Boston, they've located the school of the deaf right near the Logan runway,
0: because so <laughs> the land is cheap, and then land is and cheap, and exactly. it doesn't exactly. And there you have yeah. people,
1: you know, who obviously are, are not going to yeah. uh, uh, be annoyed by the noise as much. And so these are these are then interesting ways uh, that we learn how markets uh, try to respond to these things, not fully, but you know this also can can be an important consideration and i think again in the information area that's also we're we're seeing you know i do not expect in the financial area that people make the same types of mistakes they made this time around there'll be different
0: ones but there's going to be learning <laughs> yeah no doubt um let's turn to what i consider the classic case where government regulation may have improved matters which would be pollution um now, there is some private incentive to reduce pollution. Pollution is is, is foregone uh, efficiency. There's a natural long-term trend toward uh, less waste in, in all aspects of production because it's, waste is costly. Right. But there's still some, and there's always a temptation to dump that waste into somebody else's air, somebody else's water. So how, what's been the net effect of um, government pollution regulation? Yeah. So the
1: the... the, the... Uh one of the things that, that I also just want to make clear is there are alternative ways in which we address uh pollution or externalities. We can use the price mechanism uh in which you 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 try to put a charge uh for somebody for, for doing this or a quantity mechanism by saying, Look, there's there's certain technologies you have to use to abate the pollution. The the government's preferred approach in these things is usually what they call command and control. And what happens is is that we can see, you know, sort of almost by force air pollution going down and automobile pollution also has gone down. But again, I think there's been a very heavy hand uh, by the government here in terms of pushing things too far back. In other words, you know, at each point you can look at your output and see, is your social cost exceeding your social benefit? And I think what what the evidence has shown is yes, we we have had benefits from the reduced pollution, but they've come at very high costs in terms of, in, in the case of the automobile, increasing the costs of of cars um, in in terms of production, you know, in, increasing costs to firms. So what most of the net uh, estimates appear to be is that It's fairly balanced, if you will, that what gains we have made from pollution have often been pretty much balanced out by the higher production costs uh, of doing so. And I think, again, this is the kind of then lessons and concerns that we have now with the current climate debate that, you know, are we going to go ahead with a policy, while certainly motivated in in a time of great concern, is too heavy-handed and that we're going to have to basically sacrifice far too much of our GDP to make the improvements uh, in climate change that are determined.
0: Do you want? And,
1: to- and I think again, that's that's an important lesson that one you know, you, you points just generally to the outcome that we have a goal we want to reduce pollution, and we can do this, and we're not going to worry about the cost. Hmm. But you know, we again we have limited resources, and if at the same time you know we want to reduce pollution, but then, you know, spend money on uh subsidizing somebody else for something uh in, in the social area, we're not gonna have the resources to do that. And so this is sort of the classic problem that we often have uh with, with a lot of these sort of social regulations. We have this goal, we want to reduce we want to achieve a particular level uh of the activity and we really pay very little attention to the cost and I think that's sort of what's come out of the, the evidence on, uh, on um, pollution
0: so you're suggesting that we could have gotten those same benefits but at a much cheaper cost w- what mechanisms could we have used in the case of say auto pollution of the air that, that would have been cheaper than what we actually did uh, Explicitly
1: pricing emissions uh, believe it or not these days we could actually monitor um, you know the social cost if you will of pollution and there are ways of uh, in doing this without sort of intruding on uh, you know, where a driver is going and all these kinds of things. And so you can you could you could have actual price uh, is, is the tax. recommended approach. You or could tax. tax. You could tax. Yeah, somebody. Tax uh, tax for em- emissions would be certainly a way to do it. Uh, a similar type of example also occurs. With airplane noise, that they have command and control regulations that they have to make airplane engines that have certain decibel level, and they just have to meet these standards. Now, similarly, you could have a, quote, noise tax to airplanes and say, look, you know, if you're going to go over this, this is what you've got to pay. And again, it, it's similar to pollution. If you actually look at the descriptive data, you'll see the Decibels exposure, if you will, to to neighborhoods around airports has gone down dramatically. But it's the cost then to the plane that this has now increased the capital cost to the aircraft manufacturer. It um, made their planes uh, obsolete, so to speak, and reduced the value of their capital stock. These things obviously are more abstract and not the kinds of things that, that regular people worry about, but this is going to be reflected somehow, in, in, in their prices. Um, and these are the kinds of trade-offs that we often make. And I think that there is, in a sense, the, the general characterization, sort of an engineering mentality that often comes about with a lot of these policies in that we just don't want to achieve you know, the, the technological goal and the cost becomes secondary. Obviously, this spills over into things like public production. So we want to build the extension out to Dulles Airport on the metro line. And I'm sure when it's all done, everyone will be excited about it. But loss beneath this is going to be the billions of dollars and cost overruns. that's going to go on in the production of this uh, extension. But again, those kinds of cost-benefit trade-offs generally are not uh, foremost in public policy formation.
0: Paid for by, of course, other people. (laughs) <laughs> not the residents who will use the system. Well, the
1: and I think that's a critical point because this, this sort of general um, distribution, if you will, of costs incurred by the taxpayers you know, enables these sort of policies to move forward with, with the cost being spread out because in the, you know, people say, well, you know, it's not costing me very much or not enough that I could care about. And you have oftentimes localized, localized beneficiaries. Let me now, certainly, a, in the in the case of the pollution that we talked about, yes, that we all benefit, but again, we're also all paying.
0: Yeah, let me quibble a little bit, maybe a lot, with your um, with your tax idea. It, it seems that it's better to have a tax uh, than the uh, command and control mandate of a particular technology, catalytic converter being another example of right. where instead of just saying uh, there's a for every amount of pollution, of, of say, sulfur dioxide that the car puts out, or whatever cars do, nitri- whatever the bad things they put out, I don't remember even now, whatever bad stuff they put out, for every amount above a certain amount, or every amount that you do produce at all, you pay a tax, said they said, this is the technology you have to use." And of course, I think we talked about this on the program before. At the time, Honda met the same standard of pollution that the catalytic converter produced in other cars, but they were required to have one anyway so that that was an obvious example of of a distortion that was for political reasons, but my my quibble and i actually it's more than a quibble is you said we could we could put a tax on because we we could measure the social cost. What we can measure is the emissions the connect- now that's the technological improvement it's still a challenge to figure out what the social cost of those or the harm that those emissions cause sure. and, and there's still going to be political pressure to set the level of that tax uh, in ways that are not necessarily good.
1: No, that's right. That's right. I mean, obviously the role of the economist is certainly to inform uh, those measures, and this is exactly what also goes on in, in setting congestion tolls. Yep. Uh, you know, again, you know, the idea is to use a, you know estimated value of time, and this is what the e- economists you know, contribute to this debate uh, or co- contribute to, the, to this policy, if you will, but, no, it's true. As a, as a practical matter, um, th- these things can become politicized very quickly, and even though you know, economic research will have particular bounds of what these pollution costs are, uh, this doesn't mean that in practice that's, that's what we're going to wind up getting. Uh, actually, in, we're even seeing that already in, uh, in a highway example. I was just saying that the inter the, uh, intercounty connector... Uh, tolls, have, toll schedule has been announced, and they seem very high um, to users, or at least to, to observers, if you will. And I'm sure there will be political pressure to probably reduce those.
0: Yeah, um, well, I'd like to do a show sometime just on traffic congestion because I think the uh, the politics and economics side are quite are quite interesting. But we're getting low on time. I want to turn to right. a, a, phil- a couple of philosophical questions here at the end. Um, so let's accept your your findings and they're not yours per se they're the a summary of what many many people have studied which is a a sort of a gloomy picture uh for some that that government intervention often doesn't achieve what it was uh intended to do often serves counter goals counter to what it was intended to do or at least described as doing and certainly counter to what textbooks suggest would be the case for government intervention and I guess we could think about two broad reasons for that, if it, taking it as true. One would be just incompetence. The incentives aren't there for government to do the right thing. You talked about morale. There's all kinds of – there's the world's – Technical challenges. Technical challenges. The second is, of course, more sinister. Uh, and that would be the idea that economists have been writing about for a long time and political scientists as well, which is what goes under the broad name of regulatory capture. That once a regulatory mechanism gets set up, the people who are regulated have the biggest incentive to make sure it serves them rather than a so-called public interest. Any thoughts on which of those is more likely to be the case? Do, I, I do we know anything about it? I think it's the latter. I, I think the
1: political economy is is really what's driving an awful lot of these things, um, and, and it's just just interest groups in general. Um, you know, a lot of times it, it's not sort of capture per se, but, you know, because there's not somebody being regulated, it's just, you know, people who, you know, have an interest, are well-organized. America is increasingly getting better at, you know, lobbying and putting more money into it, and the returns from it are, are really high. And I, and I think, you know, for example, in the highway area, you know, you'll see particular users, you'll lobby for certain roads. It's not that they're being regulated. They want the government expenditures, you know, to, to benefit them. Um, but obviously, in, in cases of regulation, you can see that they, they want to use it, you know, to uh, get protection or, you know, hurt their competitor or, or what have you. And I think the answer to the, to the question is extremely important because it then leads to, okay, where do we go from here? In other words, what's the big policy conclusion that I get from all this? Yeah. And and obviously, the, the policy conclusion has to derive from, okay, what is the underlying problem? And I think the underlying problem is, is our interest groups and political economy, and I think that, the, that leads us to an answer that really calls not for the wishful thinking of improved government policy, but I think more privatization, and at a time when markets may be suspect, more reliance on them to solve these kinds of problems. Now, obviously, you know, that's going to take time, but I think one thing that, that I do want to point out is you know, we, we didn't talk much about natural monopoly or regulation, and I think the reason is because the major examples of those cases are ones where we have now have deregulation or at least partial deregulation. And I think that what we've learned is that we have been able to get gains when we withdraw government interventions to try to solve these so-called market failure problems and rely more on the market. So my sense is that for a lot of these things, given the power of a lot of these interest groups, that you know, where we try to get market mechanisms and particular privatizations, we're going to have a much better chance of solving these problems. And some of this stuff is, is believe it or not, on the horizon.
0: Wouldn't the uh, skeptic on the other side say that the Enron story and California's failure shows the dangers of of deregulation? Well, these natural natural monopoly utility markets. Well, what's
1: interesting is remember it was in the sense it was the market that that sort of outed Enron. There was nothing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there was nothing about the government that outed them.
0: I'm talking about the energy part of it, not their frauds. And I'm talking about the. The attempts of California, Enron was sort of you know involved in this. Because... Oh, in terms of
1: just just in terms of how the well, there again, you know, we have a, an example where something is called deregulation that that was so mismanaged and sort of went went in the face of what we really were trying to accomplish there. I think that 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 is a very important caution on on how you're you're, you're going to withdraw government intervention if anything. That was a big setback for that
0: yeah for that thing, but it was it was
1: mismanaged. Uh, terribly, I, I, I would add that in, in the things where I see there's chances for privatization, airports, metro system, and even highways, that it's very important to run very carefully designed experiments so we avoid the California energy problem.
0: What kind of experiments do you have in mind? Well, you, I, you
1: know, we believe it or not, we actually have some of these things on the books. So, you know, the, there are airports now. That are applying to you know, try to become private airports, and, and Chicago Midway was was the first major one where where that would happen. Uh, unfortunately, they they're during the crisis, the, their funder was able to come up with the money, but they still still hope to do it. But really, it would be the idea of, of transferring ownership, complete ownership of these facilities in private hands, and, and and let them compete and see what happens.
0: Seems like a good idea. Um... You, know, you can imagine,
1: you know, a bus service in in our area just completely contract that out, or let let a private provider take it, and, and get government out and 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 let them let them make a go of it.
0: Yeah, I recommend the podcast of Mike Munger on the Chilean bus system that went from the chaotic private system to a government run system with very bad results at the yep. time. Um, any um, any thoughts on the? feasibility of the politics it's it's easy to say we ought to move to more privatization true the political case for that is trouble is hard right now because there's skepticism about markets i think misfounded but it's definitely a reality that a lot of people are worried about about private incentives but it seems to me that the special interests are the bigger threat that your i think correct analysis that special interests steer um Regulation, a la Bruce Yandel's bootlegger and Baptist analysis, that that you get a uh, coalition of people worried about safety, but when the actual safety regulation gets written, it tends to be written by the people with a stake in it, and they manage to write it in a way that it doesn't serve the public interest. So, how might the public interest? How, how might the special interests be quieted? Right. that it would let us get to that privatization outcome that would be much harder for them. They'd have to. They'd have to work harder.
1: Well, I think this ties in with your sort of micro, macro question. That is, what, what often we see, well, not often because we don't have these that often, but when you, when you see major policy reform, you know, you, you, really need some political entrepreneur to try to sell this to the public in, in a very effective way that can head off the interest. Let's, let's keep in mind that, you know, deregulation of inner city transportation was not sold as you know, making trucking more competitive, or you know, airline scheduling more efficient, or, or whatever. I mean, the the details I think of of the policies were less essential than the broader vision of this is a time of inflation during the seventies. You know, here here we think that regulation is elevating prices deregulation is going to increase competition and it's going to help us fight inflation.
0: Yeah. I think it's,
1: it's those <laughs> kinds of slogans and, and yeah. broad visions that, that I think are much more appealing to the public than often the, the details of something that they themselves are not all that particularly vested in yeah. in terms of bigger picture things. Now, I think, in a sense, now this crisis provides us with an opportunity because you look ahead and say, yeah, what are really going to be the major big, big ticket you know, economic concerns that, that, that face us in the coming decades. Well, one is certainly budgetary concern. Um, You know, although the president doesn't seem to emphasize this, you know, we're going to have to pay a lot of this back, and governments already at all levels are running huge deficits. Uh, at, at the same time, we're also going to be looking for areas to spur growth, innovation, what have you. So when I start talking about privatization, let's just say, again, of transportation, which I know a little bit about, you know, I'm thinking, okay, here are ways that we can sell this as something that will help budgetary problems facing governments, because here are things that they can sell, uh, reducing pressures on their budgets. They'll get revenue, certainly, but also then they won't be incurring the costs of maintaining and operating these systems. And so that, that actually can be quite effective in dealing with that problem. At the same time, we also can turn the private sector loose in an area where they possibly may come up with some pretty exciting innovations. Um, so that's just sort of an example of, of how we might want to approach this problem. But think more broadly about where it could help you know, many people in an economy and try to sort of sell the more
0: specific policy in that context. My guest today has been Cliff Winston of the Brookings Institution. Thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.